You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This week, I'm bringing you part two of my discussion with Joe from the Blind Knowledge Network. We were discussing Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec and specifically his piece from the Moulin Rouge. Listeners might recall I did a Fun Fact Friday mini episode about this specific piece. But in a full episode, we're able to capture a little bit broader perspective as the two of us share our different connections to the work. I feel like who art ed? Try to spice it. Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. When I see the top hats, um, when I see these finely uh, made dresses, you know, it looks like they're custom. Um, you know, we see in the background, we see a well-dressed individual, maybe a tux. You know, I don't see anyone in a T-shirt and jeans, that's for sure. Um, do you know if it, this was more uh, geared towards an upper class or was it just the way it unfolded? But really what we, we, what we need to know, Mr. Kyle, is were there even classes back then or did we even have that concept? Almost certainly there were there were divisions and and stratas of society. I mean, as long as there have as long as there have been people, there have been divisions and class systems. But one of the things that's interesting about that particular area is um, and I'm talking about like Mortemart, that neighborhood in Paris where like the Moulin Rouge was and stuff like that. It was kind of an area where people of different classes would mix. The the nightclub scene was an area where people of different classes would mix and party and have a good time. Wow. And I think the other thing that's um, kind of a surprise to a lot of people is the dancers at that time, they were not like – you know, ballerinas and stuff, they were not really up there in society, you know? Oh, I know what you're saying. They yeah, were entertainers and they were, just you know. entertainers, yeah. They didn't, they weren't very far up the totem pole. Yeah. Um, but to lose oh. the track in his work, one of the, one of the many interesting things about him and his proclivities was he didn't like to use traditional artists' models. He actually favored using dancers as yeah. models because th- he could capture the movement in a much more natural way. Wow. Wow. You can act- And you know what? When you mention that now, 
You can see it. Yeah. You can almost see where they're going to go next or where they've been. You know, the more I look at this, uh, you could see, you know, this woman here has her hands on her hips uh, in the top right corner. Looks like maybe she's swaying or just waiting or something. Um, we have the gentleman on the left side in the, in the red in that um, interesting hat. Uh, we might have to bring that back from the 19th century because I might need that. <laughs> um, but you can see he's leaning in. He's leaning in and it looks like he's getting closer too, um, which is a whole other dynamic. I, it's cool. It's, it's very cool and interesting to me because again, it's not that normal template. It's not like a portrait. There's definitely, you can tell it's live. You can tell it's, it's before pictures. Like this is the 19th century Kodak is what well, I think of. Older this item. was, this was, uh, and you're talking specifically about the at the Moulin Rouge painting, uh, 1892. Photography came about the middle of the 19th century, but it wasn't as widespread back then. So, I think one of the things that that a lot of people don't understand is like while there were cameras at that time the first photograph of a person actually happened by accident um i would refer listeners to my fun fact friday from maybe like a year ago about the world's first photo bomb but the first photographs of of people happened to capture people on the street because some dude was getting his shoes shined because cameras were much less sensitive back in the day in those early days it would take minutes to take a photo it wasn't like it wasn't like press the button in a fraction of a second the material they were using was much less sensitive to light in those early days and that's why like everybody seems so miserable in those early photographs because (laughs) like you would have to hold perfectly still for like about a minute and, like, it's hard to sustain a smile for that time. True. You yeah. know? You can't yeah. capture the action because it's going to come out as a blur. And so oh, artists, God. you know, painting and drawing, they were still, they were still like, f- necessary to capture some things. But oh. that's why around this time we see artists like Lautrec focusing on action. They're focusing on color. They're focusing on the the expressive qualities it's all the things that a camera can't do yeah i see what you're saying because that's job security for them you know sure that's their competition they got to think about like well that that little magical box can capture the lines shapes and proportions of a building or a landscape more accurately than i can but it couldn't capture the color at that time it still can't capture the mood really you know true yeah, no, I see exactly what you're saying. Yeah, it's its own it's its own thing. It really is. It's it's somewhere in between um like a, a a camera, like a digital camera, or even an old school camera, like you said, and um almost like a caricature, or even a modern day cartoon in a way. Yeah, and that's a good connection because Lautrec did do some caricature work early on and stuff like that. Um wow. And I also think, like, the comparison I like to use a lot of times as I'm talking through these things with, with guests, it's come up several times how 
it's the difference between a formal portrait and the snapshot you take with your buddies. Yeah. Okay. You know what okay. I mean? Well, like this I'm has that feel of like, just I'm capturing my friends at the club, you know? Yes, yes absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a portrait of King George the fifth. Yeah. Um, and, and at the Moulin Rouge literally was a picture of him and his friends. I mean, we had Jane Avril there Toulouse Lautrec is the short guy in the background. Um, he was walking right next to his cousin who was his doctor. The people seated around the table were regulars at the Moulin Rouge and it was kind of his circle of friends. And the Moulin Rouge was a place that... Toulouse Lautrec was not the only artist who loved, you know, it was a happening spot for a lot of artists, philosophers, writers, dancers, and they would mingle and they would work together and they would support each other. I mean, I know you've got your podcast, uh, your network venture, the blind, blind knowledge, pine yes, sir, blind knowledge. Yes. And, yes. And I'm we- sure you can 100% relate to that idea of people sort of feeding off of each other and helping to raise the bar. I mean, that's what, that's what Lautrec was doing when he was mingling with Van Gogh and Jane Avril, they were inspiring each other just like, you know, today artist collectives do whether, you know, that's in podcast media, like you're doing or in, mm-hmm. you know, um, artist collectives like lose the interruptus that, you know, was doing stuff with environmental installations and, You know, all that sort of stuff. The idea is people come together to bounce ideas off each other, to support each other, and they all they all get better together. That's the idea. That's the premise for sure. Um, You also want to make sure you're around people that maybe are better than you or more talented, or at least that's your perception of it, because there's a quote. It's always uh, a quote that I always think of. It's if you think you're the smartest person in the room you're in the wrong room. So where that ties in is when you do a collective, like we have a blind knowledge, you know, I compare it to being in a band. So for me, I have some experience. Well, I have almost 20 years experience playing guitar. You know, I've played in clubs in Boston. I've played in church basements. I've played my acoustic on my couch earlier, but there's nothing like playing in a band because, well, there's just few things that are really good about it. But you have to be tuned in. You have to be with your bandmates. You have to be on time. You have to make sure your keys are correct. You want to make sure you hit the notes correctly. Because if someone fails to live up to expectation or the plan, it affects everyone. So I compare the collective to that as well. Um, it's very similar because if you have a collective, you know, let's say you have five, ten different uh, talented, creative people, you would, you would hope that they're challenging each other. Because once someone starts slacking or maybe not living up to their potential or maybe they're just not as passionate about it, that's going to bring everyone down. However... If people are challenged, you know, if they're learning from one another, if there's some camaraderie, if they're laughing and having fun, you know, if there's communication, everyone's going to strive better because, you know, maybe it's competition or maybe it's just evolution of talent, um, whatever it is. 
there's definitely something there. And it definitely ties into hanging out with someone like Vincent Van Gogh. I mean, think about that. Imagine, imagine walking by in Moulin Rouge where this picture was taken, you know, and seeing people like this, you know, all the time, all the time. And then you see like a legend like Vincent Van Gogh just hanging, having a cocktail. It's amazing. It's, it's almost, it's informal in a way with top hats. Yeah. And I think, and I think what's interesting is, you know, Van Gogh is a legend today, but was, was not in, in, in that day. But I think he became a legend because he liked to lose the track and the you know, so many other artists. He's a rock star, man. They're all part of the same scene. And I used to read about that in history and be like, wow, what are the odds that all of these great artists hung out together and kind of knew each other? But then it's like, actually, it makes perfect sense because they all fed off of each other. And, you wow. know, people like I, I, I've also played in lots of bands, you know, um, my, my, my roots, I was like that. Um, and I was always fortunate enough to be by far the worst in every group that I've ever been in. Um, and it does bring something out in you cause you're inspired by seeing other people who are great at their craft, no matter what it is, it yeah. makes you want to push yourself further and I think the fact that so many of these people throughout history, it's a recurring theme that these people who were really great and really passionate about their field, they all seem to know each other because they all helped each other become those great legendary figures. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And if you think about it, Henri's style is way different from Van Gogh's. I mean, if you, if you took them and you, you didn't know that they were... You know, not working together, but they were a part of the same social circles, I guess we could say. Yeah, I mean, they were contemporaries and, you know, post-impressionists and all of that. There's a different style to it, but you want to hang out with the same people that will advance your craft. Because at the end of the day, you do have to look out for yourself. But if you think about it long and deep and depending on your values... If you surround yourself with people not really like-minded, but at least on the same level of talent, it's going to benefit everybody. There's really no, there's no drawback. Well, I think, the, I think the key is in those creative fields, the healthy competition becomes about wanting to, wanting to outdo yourself. Exactly. and elevate yeah. your work and being inspired by other people but not wanting to beat other people cuz you're not right. nobody's better than somebody else necessarily but you see and appreciate like someone has upped their game and I want to be at that level too and I want to get to a higher level mm -hmm. and I think that's where competition can be healthy when you recognize other people's greatness and you aspire to meet or surpass that to be yeah. a better version of yourself, not to tear them down. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, competition is a, is a broad term. We really think sports, we think games, we think beating each other, like yeah. you said, 
When I think competition in art, I think keeping someone accountable for their talent and not slacking. Yeah. Or there's someone there, like Van Gogh had Henri there, and they were both so talented. I bet you they, they helped each other go in directions that they wouldn't have gone in by themselves. Yeah, and I think the the story of art history is really about you know small tweaks here and there. It's it's an evolution. It's one artist building off of the ideas of another, whether it's an, another person that they knew and interacted with directly or a predecessor that they learned from. You know, both Van Gogh and uh, Lautrec were both huge fans of Japanese woodblock prints. And oh. you can see the influence on that in some ways that are kind of cringy as like Van Gogh was painting things that were in the Orientalist style and just the very superficial mimicking of things that looked sort of foreign and Japanese. Um, But at the same time, you see a lot of the influence in the compositional style of Lautrec's, um, you know, his lithographs. And one of the things that they really loved about that work was just seeing these prints that were so colorful because Japanese woodblock artists, they were much, much better and kind of ahead of the game when it came to like printmaking. They were much better at it than European artists uh, for, for quite a while. And so the Japanese woodcuts, they just looked at and they're like, how are they doing this? But um, Lautrec was getting into lithography in the 1890s, right around the time that there were two things that that helped to make that take off. And one of them was sort of learning how lithography works, like learning how to how to do multicolored things, multicolored prints and and a large um large format and mass produce them. Yeah. Uh, That's a big point too. The mass production. The other thing was, you know, the French government kind of relaxed some regulations and said like, you can put these commercial advertisements in public spaces. And so it's like overnight you see thousands of lithographs up in the streets of Paris and people loved it. Um, it was referred to as the People's Louvre, and people were people yeah. were very quickly recognizing that these are not just nice to walk by and look at, but they wanted to own them and collect them, and people were taking them down, even to such a degree that an art critic wrote an article telling people this is the right way to take it down and they became like these posters that were to advertise a cabaret show but it became the artwork in people's homes and we still see those lithographs in people's homes today wow wow so it's almost like the first billboard but it was a collector series I mean, yeah, it became sort of a collector series. It's a story that repeats itself throughout time. I mean, Alphonse Mucha was later on doing lithographs that, um, again, commissioned by an actress to publicize her show. And people were, you know, tearing them down off the 
off the boards like as quickly as they could put them up. And um, do you think they were tearing them down because they were so beautiful? Oh yeah, or, absolutely. Okay. They were tearing them down okay. and selling them and wow. putting them up wow. in their homes. And like, you know, we have some of those initial initial lithographs and stuff in museums and they go up for auction every once in a while and they sell for, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. No kidding. Wow. You know what I think of? I think of like the first baseball cards, you know, they came in the gum packages and the wrappers, you know, when you get those wrappers today, I mean, they're, they're not worth anything. They're cardboard. Um, they're usually the lower tier, but the first ones, the first ones are collector's items. And I don't know, for some reason, that's what I thought of, because what you have here is really the first advertisement using art, you know, not simplistic, but very dynamic, um, touching people's subconscious in different ways at the same time, almost in a marketing sense. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's kind of part of Toulouse-Lautrec's legacy is an impact not only on the quote unquote fine art world, but also the graphic design and kind of helping to get people to see those things as on par and on the same level. And it's the same skill set and applied in different ways. And I'm wrapping it up I want just a three point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? The lab. Is this something to learn from? Or the loot. British for the bastard. Yeah, there's the a loot joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. If it's in the loo, then the loo better be covered in gold, for sure. And the toilet should be heated uh, with central airflow, for sure. Because if the... Let's put it this way, Kyle. We're doing an interview, and usually I look at the person I'm talking to. Yeah. But for the most part, I've been looking at this picture because there's just so many different things so many different shadings like on the yellow banner there's some green in there um nothing's perfect everything is organic everything just kind of fits together but again there's no straight lines everything's curved you know it's not perfect but it it just flows so well if you look at the blues in the background it almost looks like you're in this um not a jungle but you're in this area where it's just, there's life breathing, especially with the lighter colors. It gives it more of like a, um, you know, being alive kind of feeling, almost in a spiritual way. Um, and then you have the gentleman and the woman on the right with dark. They're wearing black, you know. So there's kind of like um, almost like a yin and yang thing is what I'm is what I'm getting there on a on like a deeper level. Um, and then you have uh, the woman with the red hair right in the middle, right almost in the middle, if you think about it. Not perfectly, but right there. And she has the most dynamic look of everyone. And we can't even see her because of the color of her hair. And it's, it's interesting because I'm looking and I, the first thing I looked at was the woman on the right with the blue forehead. Uh, obviously, it's, it's makeup or some kind of uh, costume or character, is it, it not? It's the, um, it's the unnatural glow of the gaslights that they would have had in there. Um, oh, wow. And he's okay. kind of emphasizing okay. that, and it's like this creepy underlit thing. Very creepy. 
yeah. at one point yeah. she was actually cropped out of the picture because it was hard to sell. People, sure. People yeah, didn't like it. Um, she's the offset for sure. Yeah. But, but actually she's what I like about it. For me, I put this piece in the museum any day of the week because, and it is in the museum. It's at the Art Institute of Chicago. But wow. it should it, be. Yeah. it's one of those pieces that, to me, I love it because I vividly remember looking at that painting, like going downtown to the museum. And I remember seeing that and thinking, if that can be in a museum, then my stuff could be too. um because when i did figurative work i was always doing these sort of like just odd expressionistic disfigured unnatural colorations and stuff like that and and it was just like one of those things where it's like okay this there is a market for these strange ideas and experimenting with these different things and you know, that's something that that's lasted with me. Maybe it was, you know, the influence of me seeing that piece whenever I went to the museum from, a, a you know, the time of being a child because I I grew up in the Chicago area. Or maybe it's just like, you know, I saw a little bit of my own style in his work or was influenced by his work, whatever. It's like it's one of those things that. I'm partial to because it's it's the kind of stuff that I like to do, you know. Oh, that's awesome! So it really connects on a an emotional level. Well, and that's that's what his stuff was about. Like I see this piece, and and the thing that I've always been drawn to in the arts is that energy and that yeah. exuberance and that positivity. And I see this, and it's like these are people having a good time they're getting together they're social it's active the place is buzzing and it's a party i'd want to go to you know the green-faced pig-nosed woman and all you know like (laughs) now now that you say that i didn't realize the pig nose but she does she has an essence it's i've been staring at her a little bit light is huge It, it depicts the deeper feeling you know in, on the right, she's not too dark, but she's not bright, that's for sure. And we only see half of her, too. We don't know what she's doing over there, which is interesting in itself. But just like the offset, man, Henri really, his style, it's just, it just flows. It's like a river. It just flows together. And it kind of goes, you know, maybe out of up and down or maybe uh, some, of the, some of the colors just kind of bleed out or... You know, it just doesn't have this left to right, up to down feel. It's almost like anything's possible. That's that's what I feel. It's like, okay, I'm going to put my effort in, but I'm going to allow the picture to become the picture. Yeah, and I, I always find that interesting because it kind of takes me back to what you were saying about, you know, he allows the picture to become something, um, that becoming and that, that potential is something I find interesting because I just think back to my old art history courses and remembering the sort of non-Western theory of art and composition 
being that the empty spaces, the less defined spaces are the more interesting spaces because it's the space that has the potential for something to happen. Where things are detailed and defined, it becomes concrete. We know what's going on. But when I look at, you know, the figure on the right, the the green-faced woman, you, you look at her dress. It's this odd organic shape. Like if you is, if you blocked yeah. off the face, I don't even know what that dress shape becomes. <laughs> um, I, know, I didn't even notice. And that. you look at the the flooring right next to it the brown shape there it, it it again becomes this sort of abstraction and the thing about abstract art is you know the less defined it is the more potential connections people can make with their their own unique interpretations you know and That's i see him taking these steps to making things more ambiguous and that's what holds your attention and gets you thinking. Yeah, I I could stare at this for another hour and still not get everything. Like I um uh, the more I look at it, it's like and I don't even have to think about it. These are just it's naturally coming to me. I don't even know what I feel there, but I just want to keep looking at it to figure it out. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. I mean, like I say, the the great art sucks you in and it, it yeah. just holds your attention. And I think the oddness of some of these elements, you know, the the shock of red hair, the odd green yeah. face confronting the viewer, like those things from a distance, they're unsettling. You look at it, the They are. They are you unsettling. Know, but then because it's unsettling, you look at it and try to think, like, why did he do that? Is it, you know, the the red and green juxtaposition, the complementary colors? Is there a play between them? Like, what's what's happening here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's moving, baby. It's moving around. It almost looks like it's swaying in the wind. And I think what's doing that is the background. Well, and it's interesting that you say it feels like it's swaying in the wind because, as I said, like he was influenced by Japanese woodcut prints, specifically the UKOE style, which is um, it translates to like the floating world style, like images from the floating world, which was like the middle class kind of expansion of focusing on the the leisure life and you know the pleasant things about life for that sort of merchant class the middle class people that's where those sure. they were making those prints and things of the geishas and and everything like that um that's the stuff that was influencing him is those floating world things and the sort of uh genre scenes of everyday life and what's going on around us and and the the earthly pleasures of dancers and um clubs and all of that and I, I i see that there's this there's this transience to this piece like nothing seems quite settled everything seems like it's a little bit in flux which is dynamic and exciting and a little unsettling because it feels yeah. like this composition could collapse because everything's at at an angle and people are moving yeah. and nothing is settled yeah it's almost like yeah, you know, you don't know what's gonna happen next. And it's it's interesting. Like it's it is like maybe not a restaurant today, but everything else today, it's just unsustainable. <laughs> you know? Yeah, 
sure. No, I uh, I see where you're going with that for sure, for sure. Yeah, there's just so much. I could talk about this for two hours. I'll tell you, Kyle, I don't have a lot of experience looking at art and depicting it and breaking it down. Yeah. But this is a really cool thing. <laughs> it's a cool, not niche, but it's like a, it's a pleasant hobby. It's a, um, it's something with a deeper meaning, I should say. It's, for me, I'm a musician at heart, so I always think music and music, it's interpreted as you wish. And usually it's, it's um, this process, like you mentioned in art, um, with the Japanese works and then into Henri's works and also with Van Gogh, you know, they, they took that style. And it reminds me of music, you know, it's, we use what has been created but we put our own flair onto it to keep that evolution continuing on. I mean, it's just, this is a beautiful, beautiful picture. Thank you so, so much for having me on just to talk about it. Thank you for taking the time to come on and talk about it. I, oh, pleasure. Pleasure. I always love talking to, to new people about, about art and I, it makes me feel good that, uh, I maybe exposed you to one that you hadn't known about before, but it, it, seems to have captured your imagination. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.